salut. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 19. Two literary houses. If you've listened to other series, you'll know that I quite like to end with a few episodes which look at the literature written in the city or perhaps about it. And we're just heading into that phase now with Paris. So to start that going, this episode is going to look at two authors, two blockbuster 19th century authors who wrote much of their work in or about Paris and for whom there is a dedicated museum in the city which you can visit today. And the two said authors are Honoré de Balzac and Victor Hugo. I'm going to take the same approach for both of them, a mini-biography, a look at some of the work they wrote and a quick look at the museum that you can visit if you want to know more. So, to start then with Honoré de Balzac, who wasn't actually born in Paris, he was born in Tours, but who did go to school in Paris at secondary level and stayed on in the city to become a lawyer's clerk. But he really always dreamed of being a writer and was writing things and sending them to publishers from very early on, although not always at first at least, with a great deal of success. It said, for example, that his mother asked a university lecturer to read over some of his early work and the lecturer replied that, quote, this author should do anything he likes, but not literature. So I do hope he, I'm guessing it was a he, lived to discover how famous Balzac was going to go on and become. He had a chequered life, to say the least, long periods of debt, a very close shave with bankruptcy, but he was also a rather dazzling society figure who liked to go to literary salons and talk exuberantly and build up a reputation as somewhat an eccentric. His biographer, Graham Robb, for example, wrote the following, quote, He let it be known that his ambition was to possess 365 waistcoats. He invested in expensive trinkets and had a magnificent walking stick made with enormous tassels and an ebullition of turquoise around a sculpted golden knob. I might just add that this walking stick, about which everybody seemed to have been talking at the time, is today still there for you to see, should you decide to visit the museum, which has been created in the 16th district from a house that Balzac used to inhabit. Such was his fame and his renown by the end of his life, that it's said that almost every writer in Paris attended his funeral as did many thousands of members of the public. His pallbearers, in fact, included the writers Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas. He was buried, where else, in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, and Victor Hugo wrote about the occasion, telling us that, quote, The coffin was lowered into the grave, the priest said the last prayer, and I spoke a few words. While I spoke, the sun fell lower in the sky. In the distance I saw the whole of Paris in the resplendent mists of the sunset. Almost at my feet the soil was slipping away into the grave, and I was interrupted by the dull thud of the earth as it dropped onto the coffin. One of the things for which Balzac was particularly well known was the amount of time he spent at his writing desk, said to be at least 16 hours a day, starting quite bizarrely at midnight, and fueling himself with endless cups of black coffee. It's said that his books are a chronicler of the French society that he lived in. And goodness me, there were plenty of them. He wrote well over a hundred novels, which he collected together under a title known as La Comédie Humaine, his idea being really to capture all the aspects of society, all the human drama that surrounded him, in as many spheres as possible. So he wrote about families, both provincial and Parisian. He had 
political characters and military ones in his novels. He went out into the country, and it's estimated that in total across the whole series there were no fewer than, wait for it, 2,472 different characters. And that's without the 600 or so other characters who never actually had names. Characters come in and out of certain novels, someone like the Baron de Nussingen, who married one of the daughters in Père Goriot, we'll come to that in a minute, Baron de Nussingen is said to have appeared in 32 different novels. So these were people that readers got to know in all their different guises and at all different times of their lives. So let's take as an example his novel Le Père Goriot, Father Goriot, or Old Man Goriot, set in Paris in 1819 and 1820, and thought in some ways to mirror Balzac's own life, or some of his own experiences at least. For example, the main character, Rastignac, is a young man with a much older mistress. She's 45, which is roughly twice his own age, a situation which mirrored Balzac's own life when he was in his early 20s. It's set in a boarding house in Paris, in the Rue Sainte-Geneviève, so on the edge of the Latin Quarter. Although we do visit other areas of the city, some of the posher characters, for example, live in upmarket areas like the Chaussée d'Antin. And I think you could reasonably say that the theme of the novel is money. People having too much, people having too little, being obsessed with it. A picture of a society where all the humans seem to have their price. The Père Goriot of the title was once quite well off. He'd made some money. He'd inherited a lot more from his wife. But now he's spent most of it and is reduced to living in a boarding house with a cast of other, mainly elderly Parisians, who were also a bit down on their luck. And quite early on in the novel, Balzac explains to us how Pergorio had less and less money. Quote, Towards the end of the third year, Pergorio still further reduced his expenses by moving up to the third floor and paying 45 francs a month. He gave up snuff, sent his barber away, and stopped powdering his hair. The first time Pergorio appeared without powder, his hostess let out a gasp of surprise at the colour of his hair, which was a dirty greenish grey. His face, which secret sorrows had made gradually more mournful day by day, looked more woebegone than any of those around the table. We learn how he's pawning his possessions, his diamonds, his gold snuff-box, his chain, his jewels, all disappear. Then he starts pawning his clothes. And it's not long until we learn that the reason he needs all this money is that he's propping up his two married daughters, both of whom have wealthy husbands, but who come to him for money for new dresses and trinkets to wear to the ball, etc., etc., all of which he gives them because he can't deny them anything. When asked on one occasion why his daughter had just come to visit, Pergorio explains that yet again she'd needed money. Quote, She was very unhappy, you see, my boy. Nazi hasn't a penny of her own since that business with the diamonds. She had ordered a gold lame gown for the ball. It must look as dazzling on her as a jewel. Her dressmaker, wretched creature, would not allow her credit, and her maid paid out a thousand francs on account for the gown. Poor Nazi, to be reduced to that. It made my heart bleed. So he goes on to sell some silverware, sell some buckles, and comment, at least she'll have a lovely evening. She'll be smartly turned out. I have the thousand-franc note there under my pillow. And it's made very clear all through the novel that neither of the daughters cares for her father at all, even when he's ill. The other daughter, Delphine, gets word, just as she's getting ready for a ball, that her father's very ill, possibly on his deathbed, and that she's summoned to go and see him. 
When her husband presses her on this point, she shouts at him nastily, I don't need you to teach me my duty to my father. Not a word, Eugène. I won't listen to you until you are dressed for the ball. We'll talk about my father on the way to the ball. We must set off in good time. If we get caught in the line of carriages, we'll be lucky to arrive at eleven o'clock. And the last dismal scene of the book takes place in the Père Lachaise cemetery. Père Goriot is buried. A young man of his acquaintance is there, but neither of his daughters. They knew they just chose not to come. The themes in this novel have a lot in common with the themes in another of Balzac's very well-known books, Eugénie Calde, this time a very miserly father, scheming to have his daughter marry a rich cousin, until it turns out that the cousin is penniless after all, and set this time not in Paris, but in Saumur, in the Loire Valley. But Paris makes its entrance now and then, because the cousin, Charles, comes from there, and when he arrives in the middle of this very rural community, he certainly brings a whiff of Paris with him which all the country folk notice, thinking him foppish and ridiculous, because some of what seems normal to him is absolutely beyond their comprehension. Here's Balzac describing what Charles brought with him from Paris. Quote, he brought his whole collection of waistcoats. They were of all kinds, grey, black, white, scarabaeus coloured. Some were shot with gold, some spangled, some chinade. Some were double-breasted and crossed like a shawl. Others were straight in the collar. Some had turned over collars, some buttoned up to the top with gilt buttons. He brought every variety of collar and cravat in fashion at that epoch. He brought two of Buisson's coats and all his finest linen. He brought his pretty gold toilet set, a present from his mother. He brought all his dandy knick-knacks. It was, as Balzac describes a few lines later, a cargo of Parisian frivolities. None but a Parisian, and a Parisian of the upper spheres, could thus array himself without appearing ridiculous. Watching all of this, in what Balzac described as mutual amazement, are the country folk, whose clothes are strewn with brown blotches, who wore dingy shirts, were said to have washed their clothes only once every six months, and who were therefore covered in grimy and decaying stains. Quote, there was a perfect unison of ill grace and senility about them, their faces as faded as their threadbare coats, as creased as their trousers were worn out, shriveled up and puckered. So those little descriptions just give a picture of what the rest of France thought of Parisians, or Parisians of a certain type at least, and what they probably thought as they ventured into the country and mixed with ordinary folk. You can learn a lot more about Balzac and his works by visiting the Maison de Balzac, the Balzac Museum, which is a house in the 16th district of the city in which Balzac lived between 1840 and 1847. A number of the rooms are used for exhibitions, so they've got some of his possessions and furniture on display, and some of them are set up just as they would have been when he lived there. His study is there, which the guidebook refers to as, quote, Le refuge de Balzac au cœur de la maison. Balzac's refuge at the heart of the house. It's a dark little room with dark red wallpaper, but his desk is there, and there's a bookcase with a few of his books. It's believed he had about 5,000, but most of them have disappeared. You can look to on the shelves and find some books which he owned, for example, the complete works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And then throughout the other rooms, you can find some of his manuscripts, letters which he wrote, lots of engravings, characters from his books and so on, the famous walking stick, the equally famous coffee pot, and, contain your excitement, a pair of his embroidered braces.
Okay, so that's the first of our literary giants. And the second one, Victor Hugo, was born at a similar time to Balzac in 1802, but lived much longer and died in 1885. A real elder statesman of the French nation, a poet, a novelist, someone with a lot of views on social issues, a man who'd been an MP in both Houses of Parliament, had gone into exile for his political beliefs, and is much quoted even today. As a child, he travelled quite a lot. His father was in the army, but he studied law in Paris too, just like Balzac. And again, just like Balzac, he had literary ambitions at quite a young age. So he began writing novels, plays, and much poetry. In the English-speaking world, he's known, I think, mainly for two novels, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. In France, he's equally well known as a poet, having published four volumes of poetry, really wide-ranging in themes. On the third attempt, he was elected to the Académie Française. That was in 1845. Could have been seen as the pinnacle of his career, really. Except that just a few years later, in 1851, there was a coup d'état which brought Napoleon III to power in France, in something known as the Second Empire, which Victor Hugo very much objected to, being a staunch Republican. He left France and lived in exile for nearly 20 years, large parts of that spent in the Channel Islands. But he came back in 1871, when the Third Republic was declared, and lived in Paris for another decade and a bit as a sort of national hero and symbol of republicanism. He's admired, of course, for his literature, but also for the way he stood up for the views that he thought were important. For example, overtaking exile, he wrote, It is not me who has been outlawed, it is liberty. I fought, I did my duty, I am defeated but happy. And of the period he spent in exile, his biographer, Bradley Stevens, writes that, quote, He solidified his reputation as an indefatigable voice for tolerance, social welfare and solidarity. He was very popular too amongst the general population. When he finally did return to Paris, there was an enormous crowd waiting for him at Gare du Nord, shouting things like Vive Victor Hugo. A decade after that, on his birthday in 1881, no fewer than half a million people came past his house shouting Vive la France, Vive Victor Hugo. And when he died, his funeral was a national event, talked about for decades later by anybody who'd been alive at the time. The funeral procession started at the Arc de Triomphe, where his coffin lay in state overnight. There were columns of spectators lining the route from there to the Panthéon, so down the Champs-Élysées, across the Seine, and through Saint-Germain until they got there. There were speeches, there were people singing the Marseillaise, there were cannon salutes. An estimated one million francs were spent on flowers alone. A procession of a hundred thousand mourners made their way through a mass of onlookers that was thought to be made up of at least two million people, equaling, if not outnumbering, the population of Paris. His second best-known work, in English at least, I think would have to be Notre Dame, translated into English usually as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the medieval melodrama centering around the beautiful Esmeralda and the three men who love her, two of whom let her down, Archdeacon Frollo and Captain Phoebus, and one, Quasimodo, the hunchback bell-ringer, from Notre Dame Cathedral, seen by everybody else as completely unworthy, and yet the only man who is willing to give up everything to defend her. He's memorably described as follows, quote, A huge head, bristling with red hair, 
between his shoulders an enormous hump, a counterpart perceptible in front, a system of thighs and legs so strangely astray that they could touch each other only at the knees, and, viewed from the front, resembled the crescents of two scythes joined by the handles, large feet, monstrous hands, and, with all this deformity, an indescribable and redoubtable air of vigour, agility, and courage. Our hero is badly treated by everybody, known to all as Quasimodo the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo the One-Eyed, Quasimodo the Bandy-Legged, someone, say the people of Paris, who can't be trusted, from whom women are not safe, who is, quote, as wicked as he is ugly. Some people call him the horrible monkey, others the devil, and accuse him of, quote, throwing spells down our chimneys. Ridiculed and ill-treated by everybody, it is in the end Quasimodo on whom Esmeralda can rely. So a hugely dramatic story, a moral one, absolutely rooted in central Paris, and written by Victor Hugo partly to rekindle interest in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which was under threat at the time, because it needed a lot of work done and some people thought the best thing to do would be pull it down and start again. Victor Hugo spearheaded a campaign to save it and persuade everyone of its worth. And not least, in this enormous doorstopper of a novel, he frequently takes several pages to describe the architecture of the cathedral in intricate detail, trying to win people back over to the idea that this was a building that really shouldn't be lost. I think that aspect has got rather lost these days, although it was requoted in the days when Notre Dame nearly burnt down, but the drama and pathos of the story certainly has been remembered. If that's his second best-remembered book, in the English language at least, the first one has to be, of course, Les Miserables. A tale of crime and punishment, a plea for social justice, a book about redemption, a truly epic novel, I think it's 1,500 pages long, which shows the civil and political unrest of France in the turbulent period when the rule of Napoleon came to an end, and various factions were jostling for power, and everybody was wondering what was coming next. I want to highlight just two aspects of the novel, one being what it has to say about poverty and the injustice in this period in France, and the other being its role as a portrayal of the uprising in Paris in 1832. There's poverty throughout the book, but it's perhaps early on the story of Fantine that most pulls at your heartstrings. She's got no money, she's in debt, she has a little daughter who's been left with a family who are charging her money to look after her, and she's just desperate. So one night she goes to a barber's shop, knowing that if she allows the man to cut off her golden hair, he will pay her for it. She earns ten francs, which she spends on a knitted petticoat for her daughter, and sends it to the family who are looking after her. And we know what's really going on here when we read that Victor Hugo writes, quote, This petticoat made the Thénardier furious. It was money they wanted. They don't, of course, give the petticoat to Fantine's daughter. They give it to their own. Fontaine doesn't know this, and she's thinking to herself, My child is no longer cold. I have clothed her with my hair. But demands for money keep arriving. Fontaine doesn't know what to do next. Until one night, in a fairground, she meets an unscrupulous man running what looks like a fairground stall, but who turns out, in fact, to be pulling people's teeth in return for money. He offers her two gold coins for her two front teeth, and of course she doesn't want to agree but she's worried about Cosette. She believes her to be ill. She knows she doesn't have the money to pay, 
and more or less immediately she receives another letter from the Thenardier family saying her daughter's ill and they must have money for medicine. And so, of course, she feels she has no choice and sets off to see the dentist. The scene isn't described, but we're told by Hugo that when Marguerite, who shares Fontaine's room with her, comes back the next morning, she knows immediately that something terrible has happened. Jesus, said Marguerite, what is the matter with you, Fontaine? Nothing, replied Fontaine. Quite the contrary. My child will not die of that frightful malady for lack of succour. I am content. So saying, she pointed out to the spinster two Napoleons which were glittering on the table. Ah, Jesus God, cried Marguerite. Why, it is a fortune. Where did you get those Louis d'Or? I got them, replied Fontaine. At the same time, she smiled. The candle illuminated her countenance. It was a bloody smile. A reddish saliva soiled the corners of her lips and she had a black hole in her mouth. Two teeth had been extracted. She sent the forty francs to Montfermeil, but it was a ruse of the Thenardier to obtain money. Cosette, that's Fontaine's daughter, was not ill. To give a flavour of the historical content of the novel, there's a scene much later on in the book where we see barricades being built just before the beginning of the 1832 uprising. People are piling up paving stones and barrels, reinforcing them with wooden beams, cartwheels, anything they can find. And Victor Hugo describes one of the barricades as follows. It had a red flag affixed to it, which fluttered over the barricade. People are working quickly. Trouble is coming and there's no time to lose. Men are issued with cartridges. Some people have got kegs of powder. And in the background they can hear drums rolling, calling the forces of law and order to arms. There's going to be a battle. And this is how Victor Hugo describes the revolutionaries who are just making their last preparations. Quote, Together and without haste, with a solemn gravity, they charged muskets and carbines. Enjolras posted three sentinels outside the stronghold in the rue de la Chambéry, the rue des Prêcheurs, and the rue de la Petite Truanderie. Then, with the work done, the weapons loaded and the orders given, alone in these gloomy, narrow streets, where now there were no strollers, surrounded by silent houses in which there was no stir of human life, plunged in the gathering shadows of the dusk, amid a silence in which the approach of tragic and terrible events could be felt, isolated, armed, resolute and calm, they waited. So there we are, perhaps faintly ridiculous to use three or four minutes to sum up the work of someone who wrote such door-stopping novels which covered so many themes and characters. But if we were really to do them justice, the podcast would never end. I hope I've perhaps encouraged somebody to go off and find the novels and read them themselves. If you're interested in Victor Hugo then, you'll probably be interested in the Maison de Victor Hugo, which is a museum in the gorgeous, lovely square known as Place des Vosges in the 4th district, the Marais district. It was here at number six on the second floor that Victor Hugo lived and wrote some of his most famous work between 1832 and 1848. It was here too that he received visitors and talked about literature and art and politics with some eminent visitors such as the writers Théophile Gautier and Alexandre Dumas. It did mention in the guidebook too that it was also here where he, quote, periodically slipped out the discreet back entrance for liaison with his various mistresses. It's a museum these days, 
telling the story of Victor Hugo's life chronologically, but also showing one or two rooms put back together just as they were in the writer's day. You can see a room which was his study, for example, now a showcase for works of art remembering him, paintings, sketchings, Rodin sculpture, and there's a recreation of his bedroom from one of his other houses, the one, in fact, where he spent the last years of his life. And there you'll see some of his own furniture, for example, the famous raised desk that he used because he used to like standing up in order to write, and also the bed where he died on the 22nd of May, 1885. This building has been a museum, in fact, for over a century, and when it first opened in 1903, one of the donations made was from his writer friend, Paul Maurice, who donated his entire library. Result that the museum's library is packed with first editions, copies of his work, handwritten dedications, manuscripts, drawings and photographs, corrected proof sheets, all sorts of things which will give you an insight into how he worked and the various stages of some of his novels. They've also got copies of some of the, it's believed, 18,000 letters which he wrote during his lifetime, lots of them from family members or two family members, but some from famous people, writers like Dumas and Baudelaire and Georges Sand, from artists, from politicians, from the actress Sarah Bernhardt. There are tributes which were sent to him on his birthdays, or which were written for the occasion of his funeral, all sorts of documents which will help you build up a real full picture of Victor Hugo. While living here, he was visited by Charles Dickens, no less, who wrote about it, really rather memorably. Quote, A most extraordinary place, like an old curiosity shop, or the property room of some gloomy, vast old theatre, sitting among the armour, old tapestry and old coffers, and grim old chairs and tables, and old canopies of state from old palaces, and old golden lions going to play at skittles with old golden balls, they made a most romantic show, and looked like a chapter out of one of his own books. They refers to Victor Hugo and his wife and daughter. So if you visit the museum, you can picture the three of them sitting there with Charles Dickens, and Charles Dickens remembering what he saw and writing about it afterwards. So much then for two of Paris's greatest 19th century writers. They both lived in Paris, they both wrote about Paris, and today they both have museums dedicated to them, which you can visit if you so wish. So that's it for today's episode. As to what's coming next, we're approaching the end of the series, and I've got plans to finish off with three episodes of literary extracts. Starting next week, in episode 20, with one I'm going to call Memoir de Paris, where I'm going to look at half a dozen writers who lived in Paris and wrote about it. We're going from the 17th century right up to the 21st. We're going to hear from an aristocrat, such as Madame de Sévigné, and from the lowliest of dishwashers, plongeur in French, who once worked in a Parisian cafe in the 1920s, even if he did go on to become the very famous writer, George Orwell. So I think we can say that all human life will be there. Certainly, lots of extracts of Parisian life will be there, and I hope that's something that you'll look forward to. For the moment, though, I'd like to thank you very much for listening this week. Merci, and wish you goodbye until next time. Au revoir. <laughs>